You've stumbled upon The Power Peas, a podcast about pop culture, politics, and pussy. Does that word gross you out? Well, too bad. Join my friends and me here in Washington State as we rant about our favorite bullshit and attempt to make sense of the world using the movies, television, books, music, issues, and people we're obsessed with. Welcome to The Power Peas. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of the Power Peas podcast. Today, I'm joined by my friend and Washington State Representative from Washington's 29th Legislative District, Melanie Morgan. Hi, Melanie. Hi, Emily. That's so weird calling you Emily now instead of Representative Wicks. Well, you can just call me Wicks, you know. <laughs> or Wixie. Can I can still call you Wixie? Yeah. You, oh, and Wixie for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I love that one. <laughs> well, let me give a little bio for you. Melanie is a former school board director from Franklin Pierce Schools, a U.S. Army veteran, and an active community advocate. Melanie uses an equity, diversity, and inclusion lens when addressing policies and practices and how they may impact the entire community. In the Washington State House of Representatives, Melanie is a strong voice for underrepresented communities and a staunch advocate for equity in state policies. Having personally experienced homelessness, she understands firsthand the barriers people face to meet one's basic needs. She knows that people who struggle the most tend to have the least access to the legislative process, and this motivated her to run for the state legislature. She's proud to bring her personal and professional experience to represent and advocate for the 29th. Church includes South Tacoma, East Tacoma, Lakewood, Parkland, and Spanaway. Melanie has also been a strong housing advocate since 1997, serving as a mortgage banker, a safe housing coordinator, and as a commissioner on the board of the Pierce County Housing Authority. Additionally, she has served on the board of community health care and is also a domestic violence and sexual assault advocate and a graduate of St. Martin's University. Melanie lives in Parkland. Melanie, again, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. I don't know why I did that, but that's how I roll. (laughs) That's how I make you feel. Well, today we are talking about something very special. We will be discussing pop culture, politics, and pussy as they relate to Juneteenth. We're also going to talk about the book, Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit by Mary Frances Winters. That'll really cover pussy, too, (laughs) and how women especially are feeling fatigued. So, Melanie, the first thing I like to do on this show and on this podcast is talk about how we met and get that perspective from you. So I'm curious what your story is of how we met. I'm going to start on pussy. (laughs) Well, we met through the legislature. There's this great picture that I have in the wings. And I thought I was just taking this picture with a couple of people. And then when the picture comes out, I see Representative Wicks throwing up peace signs in the back. And I'm like, look at my girl. (laughs) One of my favorites. And then, of course, we served on the same committee. It was Commerce and Gaming back in the day, known as Regulated Substances and Gaming now. And you served as the vice chair on there. And I think that's where we really got to know each other from. And I was on leadership at the time. And so I think that you were one of my people that I had to reach out to. I purposely chose you. Yeah, that was fun. I think we got to switch it up because we liked each other so much. So (laughs) we were a good team. And I don't know about this picture you're talking about. So I definitely need to see it. Okay. 
I'll have to send that to you. Yeah, we had a great time in the legislature. I try to think about kind of when we first met. I knew of you through the Women's Political Caucus of Washington and our endorsement process. You were on my list, you know, of people to get to know. And we just really connected even over Zoom, which is what we had to do in 2021 and 2022 for the most part. And then just stayed in touch and kept calling. And I think my favorite day was, well, for those who don't know, our committee is pretty interesting because we do get all the people that care about the, I guess, quote unquote sins, you know, tobacco, gaming, teen, liquor, cannabis. Yeah. So we get some pretty interesting people that come to our committee and one person who testified in a bathrobe (laughs) during their committee. One day I was in line getting a coffee and I get a text message from you that's like, happy Friday. And you were in, well, a beautiful white bathrobe, but a bathrobe. And I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, made my day. (laughs) I cracked up. That was awesome. (laughs) That was when I know we had truly made it as more than colleagues. We were truly friends. (laughs) That's right. Like, since we're all showing up in bathrobes in this Zoom world, what I like is that we connect on different levels. It's not just on this legislative level, but we also connect personally, and we really connect business-wise. And you worked on my campaign as my fundraiser, which was, I think, was a success. And that's what I think I really got from you a lot, is to move on and that you're believing me, you understand the process don't have to over explain and very Aww. encouraging as a fundraiser and as a person Thank you. that that might be our Scorpio trait. I don't know. Yeah. Oh my God. You know how many like awesome women in politics are Scorpios? I think it's a thing. Mm-hmm. What day is your birthday again? November 11th. Okay. Yeah. I'm on the earlier end. I'm October 29th. So there's not, there's like only a few October dates that are in Scorpio world, but there's like majority of the women on the women's political caucus have a, a Scorpio birthday. So we're passionate bitches. Well, there you go. That's what it is. Don't be putting your hands on my pussy. <laughs> yeah, get it off. <laughs> <laughs> no, you may not grab my pussy. <laughs> the only people that get to talk about pussy are the people on this show, okay? <laughs> okay. I have scared of many men off this show as a result of that. Well, well. <laughs> I have a lot of women to interview, so that's okay. Goodbye. Okay. okay. <laughs> we are going to talk about Juneteenth today. And just to preface everything before Melanie gets into the meat of it, Melanie in 2021 was the sponsor and pushed through House Bill 1016, which made Juneteenth a state holiday, which means also vacations. Oh, okay. I'm going to remember you said that. You better edit that piece. (laughs) I guess I wanted to get to the point where it was so impactful that statewide we made huge changes to holiday and that is a big deal. I think that you bring up a very important part though. How do we look at Juneteenth, right? The bill Representative Morgan passed making Juneteenth a state paid holiday. It took me two years to pass that bill. The first year, it's something that black people 
always get. Not now, we don't have the money for it. The issue was the money. And still being a new legislator, I really didn't understand the ins and outs. And you know from being on this side that there's a lot of intricate veins in that. And so pushed it through again the second time. And I think that I was able to message it better and getting stakeholders on board to get this passed this time and really understanding how this fits in the budget. I think that's what really helped it get it passed this time. It was on the cusp of President Biden also signing into law Juneteenth being a national holiday. We actually signed ours into law, I think, in May, whereas the Fed signed theirs into law in June. And then when did theirs go into effect? Because yours went into effect in July 1. So we missed the first June. I, I believe that it was a couple weeks before. Even though the state capitol still celebrated it, we had a function on the state grounds. I spoke there. Dr. Karen Johnson from the state equity office spoke. It was a good function. I, I don't know what they're holding this year annually, but the whole point in passing Juneteenth is about a celebration from the whole state and now the whole country. Giving background on exactly what is Juneteenth. And that is simply that in 1863, the proclamation from President Abraham Lincoln went into effect abolishing chattel slavery. There are parts of the United States that did not free all of their slaves in that proclamation. And on June 19th, Union soldiers rode into Galveston, Texas to announce that in fact, you are free. As a matter of fact, you've been free for two years. So this is the Independence Day, if you will, for Black African Americans celebrating that all slaves on June 19th, 1865, were indeed free. Ish. Ish. Okay. <laughs> the ish is important. <laughs> celebrating Juneteenth, as I had stated in all of the speeches that I have given, that it's really about how do we now take this history, this egregious history of chattel slavery, and move to a place that admitting that, yes, it did exist, and that there are repercussions and things that play out from that that we're still battling today. And Emily, you and I have had many conversations about the tentacles of where this originates from in white patriarchy. So we can't not leave them out the conversation. But my hope, and it always was, my hope is that we can come together in some form of resolution, in some form of reconciliation, and in some form of how do we move forward in inclusion? Absolutely. And I'm kind of trying to learn on this a little bit too. But as we were talking about making it a state holiday and the budgetary aspects of that, which is so important and which is a whole other aspect of passing bills, I think sometimes people think that we just pass bills, but when there's a budget line item on those pieces of legislation, that's a whole other conversation added to the difficulty to pass the legislation. So it was a huge lift. And it was something that people were unwilling to do in a sense, and, and not enough, obviously, but would this kind of be a form of reparations in some aspect in that way? Is it a step forward that way of some sort? I don't know. I, I like how you pose that question. That's good for people to understand the difference and what we're talking about. 
This is not reparations at all. It's an acknowledgement that chattel slavery did happen. Like I was saying before, it's an Independence Day. Now, we want to talk about my other bill, the Community Reinvestment Fund. Now, that's reparations. That's actual money coming back to the Black African American community. But just backing up, another reason why this is not reparations, because all cultures will be participating in this holiday. We're not saying that just Black people will be participating in Juneteenth and they will be the only ones while everybody else goes to work. Nope. Everybody in state agencies will be off, whether they are white, black, etc. Absolutely. Let's talk about the Community Reinvestment Fund a little bit, too. We're on politics, so let's go for it. Well, it has the same story. It passed out of the House as a bill, did not make it out of the Senate as a bill, but the House went back and saved it in its budget. So it got put in as a budgetary item. And as you were saying, you know, people really don't understand that budget can kill a bill. And the Senate was not willing to put that forth in for whatever reason. We're past that. So the other piece is, and I'm learning too, right? There were more things that I had to do this session to ensure that. So yes, we had Department of Commerce, State Equity Office, and the Tubman Center for Health and Freedom is the nonprofit side of helping out the Community Reinvestment Fund. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm looking at their website right now and... They are a community organization committed to principles of healing and people's liberation from systems that make us unwell. They work to advance health justice, culturally appropriate care, and integrative medicine. They are designing an innovative community health clinic that specializes in meeting the needs of marginalized communities in Seattle's Puget Sound region. Named after their heroine, Harriet Tubman. But what I had to go back and do was give spending authority. They didn't have spending authority. Who knew? You think that once you pass something, everything just goes? Nope. There's other checks and balances that I had to go back and put it back in the budget to give them the spending authority for $200 million. But you were also there voting on them getting started. Absolutely. Yes. I was there. I was part that of was that. was in the operation budget. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was in that budget cycle. We'll be right back after a short break. Let's move around to pussy a little bit (laughs) to have that conversation because we can still talk about this in terms of politics. And one of the other bills that you passed before my time in the legislature was the hair discrimination bill. I want to hear all about that and I want to hear that process and where you were at. But it really struck me when I first got to know you and see your body of work in the legislature because I worked at the Marysville School District. And one day I, as the communications coordinator, was coming into one of our schools and there was a very, very distraught parent who was reasonably up in arms about the fact that their child was told that they could not wear the bows and ribbons that they had in their hair. Uh, The child was black and they said it was too distracting for the other students. And so that was real life and that was, very much happening to youth in my community and it really broke my heart and frustrated me because what you do with yourself it's other people's problems right if they're going to be distracted by that and this made a huge difference for that child and that parent in my school district so legislation like this is so real and so important. And so I want you to talk about that a little bit. But that was, you know, again, before my time in the legislature, before I got to know you, it was 
one of the most amazing pieces of legislation that I could see that it really affected people in their day to day. Yeah, thank you um, for that piece of introduction. You know, interesting you bring that bill up. I just went to one of our middle schools here in my district and I had a very astute student really engaging with me about the legislature. And he came up to me afterwards and spoke with me just like a young gentleman would, right? Um, and he was a, a black gentleman, but he was kind of, of, um, uh, how do I say, um, I don't really, I want to, how do I say that I could tell he's around Republican people? I think that's a good way to say it. <laughs> hey, psst, psst, psst. <laughs> You're racist. I could tell who he's surrounded by, by the way he's asking me the types of questions about why is it necessary for this, that, the other. And so I posed it to him about, think about this, in this day and age, he had a, a short fade kind of haircut with little, it looked like little twisties at the top, right? So he's wearing one of the hair textures from my bill, twists. Think about why is it necessary for me to pass a bill about your hair in today's society, in this century. We should all be questioning ourselves as to why it's necessary for us to pass a law as to don't touch my hair, no more touching, we're not on the block, the auction block anymore. It really comes down to assimilation and it came out of wanting, first of all, slaves, Emily, if we really think about Juneteenth, when they walked off those plantations with nothing, not a red cent in their pockets, and they were told to survive and fend for yourself. The decent way to survive and fend for yourself in our country is to be employed, to be gainfully employed. And where were they going to get a job knowing that they just left a plantation that considered them an animal. So to pass, to now be in 20, I think that was 2020, to be in 2020, to have to pass a bill to tell white people, no, I don't need you to comb my child's hair in the classroom. And definitely you're lucky that I wasn't a mama and you didn't cut my child's hair without my permission. You at least could have called me. That's the least you could have done, but you took it upon yourself as if I don't have any right or a voice. So coming, circling back when you're talking about why I'm the state legislator, because we need a voice that will say no, unapologetically. I get in trouble for that all the time, but I'm just saying. But that's what people elect you to do. That's why you're there. And I think you've absolutely had some of the hardest times, but only because you are doing the people's work. You are serving your community and you are serving those voices, as I said in your introduction. And it's hard and it's really hard unless you acclimate, and which is what I think white supremacy and that systemic racism that's in our community 
is trying to require us to do. I think we talked about that a lot too. And I talked about it with my therapist that, you know, systems are meant to continue, right? And they're meant to just kind of get circular and push back on change because it's a system that keeps going. And it can be really hard to do that. And I think we definitely in the legislature are promoting and letting that system carry us because it can seem easier. And those that try to push against the system and try to make the real change that we need can get pushed out themselves because it is so difficult. And that's why it is so important that we are lifting those folks up. And I, you know, I saw a lot of examples of that, you know, during my time in different ways, someone was gonna lose a vote, they were gonna lose on their amendment that they believe strongly in, you know, people would come and support them in that effort. Those were important moments for all of us. I'm kind of digressing on stuff. No, I know exactly where you're trying to go. So let me see if I can circle this back around. I've had to fight all my life. <laughs> this is not a new fight for me. Matter of fact, I know somewhere in my journal, I have written, and I don't know which year because they're blending all together. I'm in my fifth year. This train is never late. It's never, ever late. You love me, hyphena, to elect me to get rid of your infection. We always come in as black women to clean up the mess. Even our former president, Barack Obama, was elected only after the last president that messed up so bad that why not, right? Give him a chance. I wish it was the woman, but hey, this is where we are. <laughs> it wasn't the pussy. They chose the dick instead. <laughs> Anywho, I mean, I like dick. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> PSA, I love dick. <laughs> That's what I said to Nicole in our first podcast. She was like, well, I know you like I yeah. heard her She's say like, that. She goes, I know you like men. I go, no, 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 no. I like dick. <laughs> yeah. I go, I could do without men, but I do like the dick. I'm sorry. It's just okay. what it is. <laughs> I'm hooked. Okay, I'm hooked, <laughs> even with a hook. Anyways, I'm going too far. <laughs> okay, where were we? <laughs> Black women are cleaning shit up. Okay, so yeah, that's a good, good one. Okay, so now in 2020, we had the Black Lives Matter movement. Out of this movement, lots of companies, states, agencies, etc., were now trying to get with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Lots of companies were started out of that. Lots of positions inside of companies and agencies were created for that. One of the things that I like that the author of Black Fatigue defines DEI as, she says it's actually DEIJ, a diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And the point that you bring up for me is the justice piece. And that justice piece is 
We're coming in to clean up your mess. You want me to be all hyphy to get elected to take out your infection. You want me all hyphy up to clear the path for you to pass a bill or to get an inside internal election done. But then as soon as that's over, you no longer need me to be the wind up toy. And now you want to stuff me back down in the box as if I popped up as Jack in a box and put me back on the shelf until needed again. Unfortunately, I'm not a computer program. I'm a human. So there again, we are still stuck in 1865 is viewing me not as a human being American, but viewing me still as something to use at your discretion. And the way that it's being done now, because there were so many other things, black codes, Jim Crow laws that took us out before. Now it's about character, skills, and guess what? This is the one language. What type of language am I using that's causing a threat, that's causing people to feel uncomfortable, that's causing people to be offended? But I will be honest with you here today on your podcast. I know for sure that I go to sleep very well at night except for the menopause and the hot sweats. <laughs> Speaking of the pussy, it's all out of whack right now. <laughs> It doesn't know how to handle it. Uh, it's dry from hormones. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> we just loop it in because we are we we carry the pussy. So how could I not? <laughs> That's right. Everything has a pussy component. <laughs> we just loop it in. <laughs> There's always a pussy component. <laughs> we'll be right back after a short break. Imagine for a moment that you are torn away from everything you know, forced to march down a dirt road, chained and shackled, with fear and anxiety consuming your every thought, which escalates in the darkness of the cavernous cells. As you are being marched through the door of no return to be loaded as cargo onto the waiting ships. No one has waged a war against your captors and rescued you from this kidnapping. Imagine that you arrive at a destination where the air smells different. The sun, rain, or snow feels foreign on your skin. And all the people you see without chains are pale skin. Some of them look at you with bewilderment, while others see you as something vile. A pail of cold water being thrown at you to wash you down, being oiled up to appear healthy and vibrant, and being led to stand on a block while being poked and prodded for sturdiness like an animal. Imagine that while you are surviving the plantation, when the Union Army rides in on June 19th and tells you that you are now free, you stare in shock. Not sure if you heard correctly. It feels like, a, like the dream you've had all of your bondage days are now coming to life. You jump with Jubilee 
and excitement and anxiety because no slave knew what freedom was or where to go. Imagine that it is 1940 and your family has survived the trauma of the kidnapping, slavery, denigration, to only experience exclusions in land, employment, education, and healthcare. Imagine that you are not free enough in the land of the free to drink out of a white drinking fountain, sit in the white section at a church or theater, or wear your hair in its natural styles of braids, twists, or an afro. Imagine facing daily microaggressions and discriminations as you marched on the beach of Normandy in the jungles of Vietnam, maneuvering landmines in Kuwait to protect the very freedom of all Americans. Imagine going to work, feeling like an imposter, waiting with great trepidation to be called into the supervisor's office where your work ethics, character, skills, attire, appearance, decisions, the way you speak will be called into question. Ending in professional training or termination for not meeting their expectations. Black fatigue, as described by Mary Frances Winters in her book, is a term that encompasses the fear, frustration, and anguish that Black people endure daily. It is the result of relentless and unjust experiences that too often lead to violence. But we must remember that this fight for justice is not new. Throughout history, Black communities have faced violence and discrimination, yet they have persevered. Juneteenth, celebrated on June 19th, commemorates the emancipation of enslaved African Americans. It symbolizes the struggles and resilience of Black people, reminding us of the progress made and the work still needed to combat racial injustice. Juneteenth holds a special place in our hearts as it represents the hope for a future where freedom and equality will prevail for all. Let us recognize the deep-rooted nature of racism and its far-reaching effects. The part that I'm having a hard time reconciling in this work is not being believed. Going through this system with one day being the hero and the next day I'm at the whipping post and not understanding what happened overnight while I was sleeping. Back on the plantation, Africans used to go to bed with their families intact to wake up in the morning to find that their family had been sold off in the middle of the night. So this black fatigue that we talk about is more than just about enduring because everybody is fatigued. Let's face that. All of us, especially women, we're all fatigued. But today we're just talking about how black women are showing up in society and having to endure and hold up and represent a lot. 
and bearing a lot on our shoulders to carry and answer. We'll be right back after a short break. amazing did you write that is that your speech that's good that's fucking good we talked about the ish where they were free ish right when i'm talking to people that don't understand the people that say i don't see color uh you know i'm not racist what i constantly tell them and it seems to work is that i say listen imagine that your father's father's father mother's mother's mother was a slave Okay, you're no longer a slave, but you can't work. You're not treated equally. You can't get a job. You have nothing. That seems to be the way that my white friends who don't get it start to understand it because they constantly like, well, I didn't grow up rich. I'm like, well, I didn't either. Our whiteness affords us that privilege. I may not have grown up with a lot of money in my home and we might have struggled, yet my whiteness gave me opportunities or it gave me leeway i was less likely to get pulled over i was less likely to get in trouble i was less likely to have the trouble that i did get into result in a suspension things that can harm you indefinitely in life and i think people don't realize that but she also mentions in the very beginning of the book that if white people know that they don't want to be black in this country, they know everything they need to know. And I thought that was really poignant. When you have a community that doesn't understand how you need to be supported. So what choices do you have? It is the same choice that we all come up against. Do we want to stay in public office and continue to be a pinata at times. On the other side, experiencing the exhilaration of passing a bill. But the reality is we have one gentleman and this is out on one of the videos that King Fi put out for probably for Facing Race, which they won a Peabody Award for. But he was called a nigger in the woodshed. What do you do with that? Do you keep fighting for black people in keep waving the banner, keep trying to tear it down and not make much way, which was creating the space for me to come? Or do you assimilate and change it from the inside, which makes it, he opened the door, they opened the door for the rest of us to come. So it's unfortunate that, and this is exactly what we face all the time as public elected officials, is that nobody knows what goes on behind the curtain, right? Only if you serve do you know the true ins and outs. And that's the true in and out of that. How that looks is it's like they're not supportive, but they chose a side. It is a side, to be honest with you, saying today, I'll show up and say today, I'm fighting. I'm at the crossroad. The crossroad is assimilate or continue to be a pinata which will tear down my wellness and my mental health. 
I've already been here before. I'm at the crossroads now and I am just like rebelling. You know how you tried to bring Charlie in and he doesn't want to come in and he sticks out those two front paws down in there? That's how I feel. I will not assimilate. I'm angry about that. I even have to put that on the table to make a decision. That's fatiguing. What I've noticed in my culture, kind of where I'm at too, once you're on a track, it's hard to get off. My first session in 2019 was the first session that we had five black members in the house. And we started the Black Members Caucus for which I chaired. And my goal was to de, and I know this is not a word, but de <laughs> monolithicize us in showing that we were each five different Black people. The only thing at this point that we had in common was our Black skin. But we each come from different places with different stories and different skills to add to the house. There was one member who was resistant of joining, citing that they didn't want to be looking as if it was this militant type of takeover. But the reality was that I'm glad that we were able to have a conversation because I hope that I convinced them that this wasn't about militarization. It was all about making sure that each one of us had a voice as we are here at the legislature. That person ended up, they did join us. And I was glad because we needed their experience. And I learned a ton and I still do from that person today. Yeah. I'm just taking it in. And you hope once you get that support and more people on your side, you can start to push back with them. But again, even with a team, it is fatiguing. Yeah. And I'm really hopeful, engaging more with Republicans, listening to their story. Now, we know that overall, nationally, Republicans have their little messaging techniques that they like to play, whatnot. But when you're on the state level and we really get to talk to people, they have lives. (laughs) And there's some real things that they're dealing with. We have members in my five years who have had quadruple bypasses, had family members pass away, houses catching on fire. To be compassionate enough to know you're still human, I'm human, but fuck you, I'm still a Democrat. That's how I feel. (laughs) And don't cross this line. (laughs) At the end of the day, we still don't match in policy, but I I get it. And I think that I've worked more bipartisan policy to where I'm looking forward to going back in 2024 and creating more bipartisan policy, especially because I'm on the agricultural committee. But the regulated substances and gaming committee was interesting. Was it? There was a lot more bipartisanship. That's awesome to hear. It was really hard during COVID and during virtual session only you wouldn't see them in the hall you wouldn't have those conversations you would just be in a meeting and then go to your caucus that is one thing that i felt like i missed out on also alicia rule asked if i ever miss it but i was like the only thing i decided that i missed is the fact i didn't get to go smoke up marcus's <laughs> office with <my> own- <laughs> the only moment that I felt like I missed anything. (laughs) We're talking about equity here. 
Sine die night when I go back on the floor. Everybody's like, ooh, we can smell that. And you know me how I was walking in like, oh, well, putting my stuff away. Because I got to smell their wine breaths and their whiskey breaths. Y'all are drinking. This is legal. It's not like I went and shot up heroin in the bathroom somewhere. <laughs> they need to get used to it. Get used to it. Right. Yeah. The people spoke. The people have spoke and they have said, okay, truly though, we're going to have to move to a place of how we use cannabis in public. That, yes. Yes, absolutely. It's been really interesting to me because I made a decision early on to be really open about my use of cannabis, both recreationally and just as medication. Medicinally, hell yeah. You know, I still have people that will say to me, people in politics, people across the board, people that work with me in different capacities, that will say, well, I know you're really open about it, but you know, I just can't, I just, I just don't, I don't say that. I don't do that. I don't want anyone to know that because it's still stigmatized and my openness about it and my ability to just say, Hey, this is who I am, accept me or not has afforded me that privilege. When I knew I wasn't going to run for office, I, you know, kind of had this not burn it down approach, but this, I'm going to do the things that I believe are right. And I'm not, going to let politics I'm not going to let a re-election campaign I'm not going to let anything stand in my way and what I found in doing that was how much people appreciated it when they especially didn't know I wasn't going to run again and they had no idea because I knew long before anyone else did had I known that would I have stayed and would I have kept going and been my authentic self and that's kind of the message that I've been giving to people since then that go into public office that run is that you need to be your authentic self and you need to not worry about those things because in worrying about those things, you will dig your own grave. (laughs) You will, you will not remember what you did, how you behaved here, and it will end up becoming this cycle of constantly pleasing other people instead of doing what's right. That's something I learned in that process. And I have that, (laughs) that, postcard I made that says wake bake and legislate (laughs) and I would just say that I love it and I posted it and have I gotten flack for it no will I get flack for it maybe someday but those people can fuck off that was a great segue you sounded like um shawarma who uh what's her name from the grave the black gray and the blah blah oh mashama mashama yeah that's on our to-do list for those who do not know there is a wonderful book that started rep morgan and former representative (laughs) wicks book club (laughs) that includes two books so far (laughs) i thought it was more so you mean you've only read two i think you did give me the viola davis one and i haven't read that one that one's like comes up on to remind me so I need to read that one too I also need to read and I've said this already in a, my last podcast so I have not made any progress but Michelle Obama's book um her second one I've read her first one but not her second oh, one. Oh, I got the first one there's a second one shit I can't keep up I know right <laughs> so those are two that I have that I need to read that I'm very excited about reading I think what gets me so upset I read Black Fatigue she has mentioned other books too marked at the beginning she's not mentioned so you want to talk about race have you read that one 
I don't know. Ojima Aluo wrote, So You Want to Talk About Race. And that was a great book too. And what frustrates me is that, you know, I listened to this book, Black Fatigue, and I appreciate this. I want to learn and grow. And I get so frustrated because there's other people that need to listen to these books that will never pick it up. And it drives me nuts, right? And it does give me the resources and the knowledge to be a better ally and to be a better anti-racist and talk about these things. But I do constantly get very frustrated that it seems to be a cycle of people that want to grow and learn and then people that don't. I experience the same as a black woman in my own culture. Like, why aren't they responding? We should be marching right now. (laughs) Right. And we're not. And something else is this internalized racism that we have inside of our culture, right? And so that's some of the things I come up against sometimes. And that's basically just us against each other. Talked about internalized perfectionism on this podcast, internalized capitalism. How would you define internalized racism? Girl, we need to Google that. Do we have the time for that? (laughs) Yeah, let's look it up. (laughs) Internalized racism is a form of internalized oppression defined by sociologist Karen D. Pike as an internalization of racial oppression by the racially subordinated. In her study, The Psychology of Racism, Robin Nicole Johnson emphasizes that internalized racism involves both conscious and unconscious acceptance of a racial hierarchy in which whites are constantly ranked above people of color. These definitions encompass a wide range of instances, including but not limited to belief in negative stereotypes, adaptations to white culture standards, and thinking that supports the status quo. That is better than I could ever have defined it, but that is what my mind went to. And she talks about it in the book, too, because she says there's a difference between subordinate and subordinated. And I think, and they use that term correctly in here. Well, obviously, it's Wikipedia, so, you know, it's right. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. It's more no, than Wikipedia. It's correct. <laughs> it's cited, Because okay? that's what I read. <laughs> well, I was looking up internalized capitalism after I talked about it with my therapist because I was like, oh, I've never heard that term. But, you know, she definitely tied it into internalized perfectionism and I was looking it up afterward and I just was like no one can see that I'm in my, I have my shocked face on it talked about how the evolution of it came from Calvinist belief the Calvinist Christian church and how the harder you work the more you produce that is your value that's why it's tied into the perfectionism thing and what was shocking to me as I was reading it is because I was raised in a Christian reformed church I was part of Calvinettes that's what we were called (laughs) so I'm like shit that's been ingrained in me since a very young age and I have to unlearn that so it's easy to see how internalized racism can also be learned over time as well my mom was an immigrant from Holland and she's always had really interesting you know thoughts about acclimating that was their survival we didn't learn to speak Dutch. She barely knew any by the time she had me. We've lost so much. They talk about that in the book. And I've heard this before. I was at this great YMCA anti-racism training a number of years ago where 
they discussed how much of our culture we have lost because we are trying so hard to acclimate. White people have really lost their culture. Wouldn't it be great if I knew Dutch? That would be fabulous, right? I would know another language. That would have been a great opportunity for my family, but they were trying to survive. My grandparents were essentially trying to avoid being marginalized as well and trying to fit in to make their life easier, which is understandable as well. I don't fault them. They brought a very interesting perspective <laughs> to me growing up very conservative in a very conservative family that did want a national language. <laughs> it was pretty interesting. As I empathize with you, but also knowing, as the topic is Juneteenth, that the Dutch were one of the first to start enslaving. Yeah, I pointed that out to my mother, who, by the way, sorry, this is a side note. My, they'll never listen to this. My niece got engaged. She is 18 years old. This was really shocking to me. But my mom was, I was like, mom, how old is X? And she's like, 18. And I was like, oh, okay, well, she's getting married. Is everyone okay with this? At least her first boyfriend ever. <laughs> she starts talking about their family. And she says, oh, well, you know, she's Dutch. And I was like, oh, yeah. And, she, you know, she's not white. And then I'm like, oh, you mean she was colonized? <laughs> she is, I believe, Indonesian, his mother. So I was like, oh, so she is Dutch because her country was colonized. That's what I said to my mom. And my mom's like, well, well yeah. I'm like, okay. You know that here in America that black people, especially in the South, name their children white names. Of course. You're more likely to get accepted in right. your job. Your resume is more likely to be accepted. It, it makes sense. Yeah, right. And some of it's not really about acclimation. It's about belonging, being able to work, being picked for the job. So the reality is my research that I did over the years, it's pointing to every one of those race riots that have happened are due to labor. That's the background. That's the whole racist part. They use racism to cover that this is really a labor problem. Think about this. The labor that was used, number one, was free and it was to certain industries you would not have to compete with now that we're free-ish you have to compete now with more people for these jobs if you still have people with the mindset that no i was told that no i should be the one to get it because i'm white and i'm not saying that you know in a derogatory sense i'm saying it in a historical context of our families of what is being talked about at the dinner table, right? What is being set up with our kids? Are we setting it up that your competition will be with every race or is your competition only with your own race? We'll be right back after a short break.
<laughs> we were about to talk about the book The Black, White, and the Gray, the story of an unexpected friendship and a beloved restaurant by John O. Morisano and Mashama Bailey. It's a dual memoir of a black chef from Queens, New York, and a white media entrepreneur from Staten Island who together turned a dilapidated, formerly segregated Greyhound bus station into The Gray, now one of the most celebrated restaurants in the country, and it's located in Savannah, Georgia. And you, I remember, gave me an assignment, and I was like, I don't want your assignment. I don't want it. I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't want more work. But you're like, shut up. Listen to me. (laughs) You're like, I have a book that we should read together. And I was like, okay, 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 I'll do that. That sounds good. That sounds okay. (laughs) But it is a really amazing cookbook that basically catalogs their time creating this restaurant. And when John came into it, I think also the book was written initially by him and then Mashama went in and added her take on things and her fatigue, honestly, in that process which was really important. And I remember he came in and one of the first things that he talked about was he was talking with the architect and they were like, okay, well, how big does the dish pit need to be? And he was like, what the hell is a dish pit? (laughs) But it had everything to do with, you know, he's an entrepreneur. He was not a, not a restaurateur at this time. And that was his, I think, first realization in that process. And he didn't even know, you know, how fast, how big the restaurant was going to be, how many people it would serve so that they had a dish pit that could accommodate the number of people that they expected and how the size of the restaurant was. And so throughout the book, though, as well, he begins to learn and see Mashama's perspective, obviously has a lot to learn. And you had a really interesting perspective on this, too. What I was thinking about when you were speaking just now, which was a great synopsis of the book, but that they spoke different languages. And that's part of the thing that I really wanted to focus on for Juneteenth this year is that what the culture that Black African Americans bring to or have created in America from the way that we speak, the way that we cook, the way that we dress, the way that we carry ourselves, our jokes, the way that we look at life, our spirituality, all of that is going to be expressed, whether that be in the speech that I just read or in cooking or how you set up that business and how do you communicate that. And I think that's the major thing that I got from the book was that he was automatically just assuming that she was going to take his way of doing things. The reality is Thankfully, he recognized that there's something wrong here because most people in the white institutional system would just carry on and say it's not working out and go find a different partner. But he had the wherewithal and the desire to find out exactly what's wrong. And I don't remember how they came to having the conversation. Yeah, it was a beautiful book, and I think it really happens throughout with both her comments and her additions and her perspective on the situations. They're weaved within each other. They're two separate conversations, again, like a dual memoir, but it just made it such a very rich book as a result of that. Obviously, you need to have those two perspectives in there. Definitely on my bucket list that you and I go to Georgia and we go to Savannah we go to other places there as well um and we 
do all the tours and we go to Atlanta, you know, we, we meet people and we immerse ourselves because I've never been there. That's on my bucket list. It can't just be me. It has to be you and me. That's, that's the bucket list. <laughs> you can't have the salt without the pepper. Exactly. Okay. I should be the flavor. We need both. <laughs> what a great, great book. Of all the wonderful bills that you passed, the one that you passed this last session was the biggest yet. The dinosaur bill. <laughs> <laughs> the dino bill probably had, I mean, in some ways, a lot of a lot more barriers. <laughs> <laughs> It's up there with like, you know, the license plate bills. Just kidding. This is much more than that, Emily. I'm laughing because I feel like it got grouped in with the other bills that were like that. How long has that bill been brought up in the legislature? I have ran that bill for four years. For four years. And so the fourth graders that started that legislation are now in eighth grade, getting ready to go to ninth grade. Did they follow that through or did the class work on it every year? Like whoever the teacher was. Yes. The teacher followed and a couple of the students followed. They kept testifying every year. The beautiful thing, even though it took four years to pass, it spread to where other districts across the state had students now signing up to testify in both the house and finally, the Senate gave it a hearing, so they testified in the Senate. I just think that is the coolest thing that these kids and so many kids across the state got to be part of, and they got to see it go through and be passed into law. Did you have an amazing day? Did you get to go to the bill signing? Of course I went to the bill signing. <laughs> they were allowing minimal people, but the accolades really belong to the students, to be honest. They're the ones who brought the idea to me. I never would have known that we had a dinosaur fossils found on the Susia Islands. And I went to their classroom the first year, gave them the draft bill. They were so excited. And it was always for the kids that I would always reintroduce the bill. And they always showed up every year to testify with me. And, and they showed up for the signing. Some of them showed up for the signing as well. And that was beautiful. The testimony for this is about the engagement with their legislature. I don't think that we promote civic engagement as much as we need to, as we need to remember that one day they will be the state representative and making laws for us. And I'll be an old woman by then. So hopefully they're kind to me <laughs> in my senioritis. There is another bill that I wanted to highlight because it's important on your pussy piece, I think. And it's one of my first bills when I in my first session. And that's House Bill 2018. And that's adding sexual harassment to the ethics code. So that was out of a big case of women who were being sexually harassed on campus. That bill passed through the House and the Senate as a protection. That's great. Language is so important in legislation too. And that also reminds me of the other bill that you worked on, which was how many pages thick? Well, the, <laughs> the 300 pager, just changing one word. Was that a 300 pager? We changed the term marijuana to cannabis. And you had an amazing speech on 
the use of the word marijuana. It's really pejorative and, and racist at the end of the day, as marijuana was always tied to the derelict. The derelict were the black and brown people. Into the point where the FBI was targeting those individuals. The continuation of the harassment by law enforcement. It's just one more thing for them to tack on to black and brown people. So just to disassociate a substance that we have legalized and that, in fact, black and brown people have been pushed out of that market, which is why we had to bring on the social equity and cannabis that is not tied to them in a, in a derogatory way and that we use the scientific term and the scientific term is cannabis. Yeah. And like small pieces of legislation, not really small because it was 300 pages long, but language really does matter. And we know more than anyone and an attorney and a lawyer could tell you that changing an and to an or can change a bill dramatically and that is so important and so these pieces of legislation they make a huge difference and across the country you got national media attention for that bill as well i was thinking that i got attacked for that you got attacked? the attention was not in a positive way it was from republican outlets that were basically kind of like the dino bill that were wasting state resources, state time in passing bills. But I would say we are never wasting time when we are listening and engaging with our youth. And we are never wasting time when we are trying to dismantle racism. Absolutely. It's part of that justice piece too. Correct. Right. And so that brings it to, I think everything that we've talked about, whew, I'm tired just thinking about that. And that's that's only a smidgen of the bills and doesn't even talk about any of the provisos in community centers and trying to address the mortality rate in black African Americans in ensuring that we have a black wing that addresses some of those diseases. So imagine how tired and fatigued I am just doing the good work of the people. But the good work of the people tries to get stamped out by just the very thing we were talking about in the DEIJ work in that black women are coming in to fix things. And once they're done on how do they get you out? And one of the ways that they try to get you out and I feel in the way that I've been targeted is through complaints and investigations. And so defending oneself on that level, plus trying to do the work of the people and be this elected official, plus still be a woman with my pussy, take care of my pussy. <laughs> really like how we're tying this all together. <laughs> to go to the black fatigue and just fatigue, first of all, in general, the legislature is fatiguing. I often talk about how people are scared to go on a limb to take appropriate risks, the right risks to stand up for people and to make that change. And one of the ways that I think it's not necessarily fear, but it is the fatigue, because I know when I do a certain piece of legislation, just as any legislator, you know the kind of backlash you're going to get. I knew when Tim Iman shows up to the meeting that the next day, me and my LA are going to get thousands and thousands and thousands of emails from bots about that legislation. And that is tiring. And it's also tiring for someone who came into the legislature that most people come into the legislature and want to be 
incredibly responsive to their constituents and to respond to every email. And people will fatigue you and attack you by simply sucking up your time, your energy, sending horrible messages about anything and coming to their own conclusions. And then to add to that, I cannot imagine what it is like to be a person of color, to be a woman of color in the space that is also so fatiguing for everyone that serves. Thank you for that. I wanted to add this through what Mary Frances Winter says. And I'm just going to read a paragraph, kind of sum it up. She highlights the exhaustion and frustration and trauma experienced by black people as they navigate systemic racism on a daily basis. She also explores how racism can lead to stress-related illnesses, mental health issues, and overall diminished well-being. We have to also remember that the CDC has now said that racism is a public health issue, public health crises, right? So the PTSS, post-traumatic slave syndrome, that Dr. Joy DeGruy writes about, her book is titled the same, talks about that stress. And instead of naming it post-traumatic stress, calling it post-traumatic slave syndrome, is that's generational coming down and what has impacted black people today. There's an added difference in, and I don't mean no harm or any disrespect to say that I'm not judging on who's tired and who's not. I'm specifically talking about the added thing that when I walk outside my door, because of the color of my skin, I have to put up certain defenses, walk in a certain way, be alert in a certain way. This is draining, just walking outside the door. And for me to interact now with society, I have to be careful. You know that when I'm with you, I'm all off the chain. You know I got to clean that up when I'm out in public. <laughs> Lest I be, lest I be putting a straight jacket. Yeah, when we're driving through Monroe, you're like, I'm with you. I'm with the white lady. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to remember that sometimes. Like, oh, yeah, I don't need to. Oh, she's driving. I'm good. That's real. We don't forget Sandra Bland. I don't want to get Sandra Blanded. This is what another friend of mine, we went to Canada. She's like, no, I'm not driving. She's Hispanic. And she's like, but I'm feeling okay going over the border with the two of you, <laughs> me and my other friend. And I'm like, I'm glad we could help. But I know it's a reality. I know that when I'm driving my fucking Subaru and my Lexus that I have it easier. My tabs needed to be changed. We got a car that we bought from friends and we were having issues with the title. And I was like, I am more nervous to drive this vehicle in Marysville, Washington than I am to drive it to Seattle. <laughs> I laugh because we had folks we bought it from had a Blue Lives Matter stripe on it and I left it on to buy me some goodwill with officers and I took it off immediately when my tabs got updated and I was able to do that. That is how you're constantly living. I'm constantly living in a state of trauma, to be honest. It is one trauma after the next. There's even things that I just can't even say out loud. I mean, and I'm just like, wow, okay. Here's a fatiguing part for me. I believe I am a very understanding person and I believe that I listen to other people's perspectives and I believe 
that I am willing to share the space of power. And it's hurtful and a betrayal when that is not reciprocated to me. And it's hurtful and a betrayal when I show up in my authentic self. And my authentic self has not changed since my birth as my father tells me that I was screaming and he was worried and the doctor says she's a fighter and she has a great set of lungs. Well, I'm still screaming. <laughs> and for me to walk away because someone else has defined me and put me in a box and said, because she acts like this, then it equals that. Well, that's their perception. For me, it equals freedom and strength and being able to be at the table and I feel I'm really showing up in my authentic self and take and being vulnerable in being that because what I have to say to that is I should go and file a complaint against every passive aggressive person that skins and grins in my face every time I see them. Yet you're talking about me behind my back when I am so forthright to come with to you and say, hey girl, to help you. First, this changes people. This strikes at the soul, at the spirit. I'm heartbroken. I'm literally heartbroken from the people that I'm around. I'm so exhausted. And the reality is we know that it's hard in the session and how long does it take to decompress? And just the other day, I'm crying for no reason. Am I really experiencing post-traumatic slave syndrome, right? With the depression, anxiety, and I mean, it was really hard for me to go to session this time. There was a lot of crying every day, especially crossing the bridge. I thought of you a lot. I love you for saying that you thought of me because I felt that. I remember hearing a legislator say how excited that made them to see the Capitol to go under that bridge. And I was like, I don't feel that. I feel dread every time. I would say this, it depends on who you're speaking with. I think we all start off with the nostalgia of, whoa, we're over here, we're, we have this job and the majesticness of the capital and that you are chosen to be the one to represent your people here at the capital and make laws in legacy. But I think that the deeper you go in, the further you go into the curtain, the more you experience, the darker it becomes. It's almost like one of those Marvel comics. Everything starts off real sunny and then all of a sudden it's starting to get darker and darker. And I think that's where it ends up. When you said that earlier about, you know, it's all mixing together, you know, your fifth year. I'm like, imagine how fucking Steve Kirby felt. <laughs> like, how much blurring does he have? But that's a whole different thing because he's experiencing it differently. He's yeah. experiencing it as a moderate white man. Exactly. He's not experiencing it, number one, as a woman at all, which is totally different, and not a woman of color. And I could even add on another one. What if it was a woman of color who's LGBTQ plus? So you see there's all these other added labels. If you can see my fingers are in quotes, labels that we get to put on. I am looking forward to the day that we get to this Juneteenth celebration where we're talking about we have arrived, that we're just all Americans. Yes, we need to get to that, but it seems so far away. Maybe not. I hope not. 
I've been looking at Gen Zers and they help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're our only hope. <laughs> help us, Gen Z. You're our only hope. I think they're the ones. Millennials have been jaded, I think, and with the entitlement and then realize, hey, that didn't happen. They haven't gotten it yet totally that, hey, that's because you're working. This is the plantation over here. <laughs> it's the models, the same thing, capitalism, all of that. And it's not meant for everybody to make it because if everybody make it, then who would we make money off of? Exactly. I think it was the day that I sat in on a, a Girl Scout meeting virtually where you know, we talked about how we got involved in leadership. We showed them emojis of the past presidents and those that were on the Supreme Court. And one little girl said, I don't see any Latina women. And we were like, you're right, there are not enough. But then we showed them all the Latina women that are in the state legislature, the women that are on the Supreme Court. And that was like so meaningful. That was the day that I was like, the future is fucking bright. <laughs> it is fucking bright. These kids are going to lead. And that is one of the biggest investments that we can make right now. Like you said, educate them on the public process, civic engagement, listen to our constituents, support our young people when they want to work on bills. The ability for so many kids to testify those were some beautiful things that happened so get involved kiddos you probably can't listen to this because it's x-rated but <laughs> <laughs> i hope the psa wasn't for them not for them it's for their parents <laughs> get your kids involved well shit i gotta go feed the dog melanie this was a delight i am so glad you're my friend i'm so glad that i have your insight and your feedback and your dialogue in my life i'm glad other people got to hear that today too you're wonderful and come back again and let's talk about your next steps and your next pieces of legislation and all the things you're gonna do to make a difference and also make sure you find time for that self-care and I know you do, <laughs> but it's still fucking tiring. <laughs> I need uninterrupted self-care. Yes. We should do another trip, but we got to do it in a way that's like a true relaxation trip. That would be good. You mean where you're not working? Well, neither of us are working. I know how to do that. Okay. Well, teach me your ways. <laughs> <laughs> Says the Scorpio. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can only role model. From one Scorpio to another. <laughs> Remember, I tried to have you, I tried to have you color. Remember, <laughs> you didn't know how to disconnect. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was one thing we should mention. Yeah, our trip to Treehouse Joint. I am staring at the picture you painted for me. Which in one of the tree houses, it had this really cool kind of wall art. There was not a picture there, but it definitely looked like a butt. <laughs> and oh, yeah, it looked like a wait, what? A puckered butt. A puckered butt. And yeah. the way you say puckered is bad. You have to be like, a puckered ass, a puckered anus, a, a puckered, puckered butt. butt. Pucker, puckered ass. Pucker up. Pucker up. I think I need to have it more visible so that I can remember to like release my puckered ass a little bit. There you go. That's a good reminder. Release. <laughs> release the butt. <laughs> release the pucker. <laughs> release the pucker. Release. All right. I love you and you're amazing. Happy Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth, all. Make sure you celebrate. I hope everyone had an amazing Juneteenth and were able to celebrate and recognize what this day is all about. Happy Juneteenth. Bye. Bye.
Deuce. Thank you for listening to the Power Peace Podcast. A huge thanks to the state representative from the 29th Legislative District, Melanie Morgan, for joining me and for ongoing work in the state legislature. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Emily and Everett. A special thanks to Brian Bradley for the Power Peace song, and I hope everyone is having a wonderful time celebrating Pride this June and recognizing Juneteenth, this important state and federally recognized holiday. Until next time.